0: I AM THE beyonder. Many times across the unimaginable breadth of space, I have observed and learned from humanity. I have unraveled the secrets of life and death, of heroism and villainy. I learned to use the bathroom. But there is one thing which eludes me still the secrets of comics And so I have summoned you here to battle pod Fan Bros Into it with L Collins less than live with Cater Die Journey into misery silence wait what? House to astonish war rocket Ajax Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men. You represent Earth's mightiest comics podcasts. You shall teach me the ways of your strange world or be destroyed. Help me understand, and all you desire shall be yours. Nothing you dream of is impossible for me to accomplish. Hey, Rachel, do you... Whoa,
1: what the hell?
2: Oh, hey, Miles. Hi, Miles. Hey, Miles. Uh,
1: where are we? Who, who, who are those guys? Well,
2: That's Paul from House to Astonish and Kieran from Journey into Misery.
3: And we're on Battle Pod
1: For the Convergence. The Convergence?
2: You know, the secret Convergence on Infinite Podcasts. We've been stuck here for like two months explaining
3: comics to the Beyonder. He wouldn't know that. For the rest of the world, this is all happening between two panels.
2: Anyway, I'm really glad you're finally here because it sucks having to explain X-Men without
3: you.
1: Thanks. Uh, So, what are we doing today,
2: anyway? Well, I was going to talk about the Summers family.
1: Okay, so business as usual. Cool. And I've got my Kang notes. Well, we're kind of veering away from our bailiwick here.
4: And I'm going to talk about the entire history of the DC Multiverse. What?!
2: Rachel Adedin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 85 of Rachel and Miles' Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera, and today, several others.
1: This episode is the ninth and final chapter of Secret Convergence on Infinite Podcasts. A nine-part series of roundtable debates across the great and the good, the brave and the bold of comics podcasting.
2: And with us today, we have guests from two other really, really fantastic comics podcasts, uh, one of whom we are probably going to fan out at briefly. So, guys, do you want to jump in and introduce yourselves?
3: Hi, I'm Paul O'Brien from House to Astonish, which you can find at housetoastonish.com, and we have a blog there as well where I review a lot of X-Men comics, actually.
1: Yeah, actually, uh that's part of where Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men came from.
2: Right. Listeners who've been here since the beginning might remember that when we covered the Silver Age, we talked a lot about a site called the X-Axis that did these fantastic recaps of Silver Age X-Men that we used to obsessively read through, and that was Paul. Yeah, so it was- Paul, it's
3: partially your fault. I'm very sorry to have led you into this. <laughs> There's no escape.
4: And I'm Kieran Shiak. I'm from Journey into Misery, which is a podcast where I explain... Comic continuity to my girlfriend Helena Hart, and I promise it's a lot less mansplaining than it sounds. We generally go one character per episode, so when we're recording this, we just did Nick Fury heading into a Halloween season. It's probably a month or so after that by now. Couple months out, probably. But yeah, that's what we do. And actually, Journey to Misery is very influenced by Rachel Miles explaining the X Men. Ah, well, thank you.
2: Since so there's
4: a like. Direct line through three podcasts there.
2: So we're basically a continuity loop, which works out really well. Now, as we mentioned, this is the final episode of The Convergence, which is a nine episode epic crossover event.
1: Collect all the foil variant covers. Some of them even have holograms. Yeah,
2: spanning fan bros, into it, Silence, Less Than Live, Wait What, Journey Into Misery, House to Astonish, War Rocket Ajax, and now finally Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men. And it seems appropriate to be closing this with the theme that we picked for this episode, which is the joys of complex continuity.
1: Yes, indeed. The joys, the sorrows, the travails and trials of stuff being really unnecessarily gloriously complicated.
2: So we talk about this a lot. We talk a lot about how complex continuity is kind of a playground for us in the X-Men and how it's it's part of the fun. And I feel like, especially if you're a long-term comics fan, and especially if you're someone who picks comics apart you know, on a professional or semi-professional basis, as all of us do. The continuity is both one of the biggest frustrations and one of the biggest draws. You know, Kieran, this is something I think that's been especially present and front and center for you, because a lot of the time on Journey Into Misery, you're doing these incredibly, incredibly deep dives that are usually character-specific to someone who doesn't actually have that grounding in the big tangles of superhero universes.
4: Yeah, and that's what's really interesting about it, because the secret origin of Journey Into Misery is I was watching The Flash with Helena and it was like maybe episode 8 or 9 she hadn't watched the earlier episodes and she just said how many flashes are there
1: oh man oh, no. she
4: she knew that she knew Barry Allen was the flash in the show and she knew that Barry Allen wasn't my favorite flash so she knew there was more than one and i spent about half an hour just explaining to her all the various flashes Barry Allen Jay Garrick Wally West Bart Allen um All of them, like Jesse Quick, XS from the Legion Superheroes, John Fox. And I was like live tweeting this discussion as I was going on, and people seemed to really enjoy it. So I was like, we're on something here. So we started Journey to Mystery, and the first episode of that was actually the DC Multiverse, partly because we were going to be going into a series of episodes about The Flash. So I was like, okay, before we do The Flash, I need to establish, what does Crisis mean? What does Zero Hour mean? What does Earth 2 mean? So there's a lot of kind of saying, explaining the larger concepts. And another thing I find really weird, especially with like Marvel comics of like the mid 2000s, is that events get explained bit by bit. So we just did Nick Fury and I talked about Secret Invasion, but only from Nick Fury's angle. So there's like 80% of Secret Invasion that Helena doesn't know about because we just went through like the Secret Warriors angle and eventually stuff does get explained totally because we'll talk about four or five characters that were at that one thing and eventually she'll know what happened at that one thing. Yeah, that's
1: something that we've thought a lot about is, I guess, the continuity of explaining continuity, for lack of a better way of putting it. Because, you know, we know that some of our listeners actually have not read much, or in some cases, even any X-Men. So we're thinking, okay, they're getting it just from us. How do we explain this in an order that would actually make any sense without just recapping exactly what happens issue by issue?
2: Well, and when you're that embedded in continuity, when you've been reading superhero comics for a lot of your life for 10 or 15 years and talking with about them with other people who have, you really lose track of what givens are, what's normal for people to know and expect or not know and expect. And I mean, I remember conversations about things like, Oh, we should define the term retcon, which, yeah, which I'm, was sorry, just go. kind of came out of nowhere because we, we realized that no, that's actually not part of the common lexicon. It's just part of the common lexicon in this very small bubble that we live in.
1: Exactly.
4: One thing that happened with that on Jane into misery is. We do an image gallery, so I'll download like pictures for all the characters we're talking about. So that when I say like Nick Fury, I can press a button and a picture of Nick Fury comes up and Helena knows. And I'll publish those online. Helena will always stop on like pictures of women and go like, that's gross. And I was, I can't remember who I was talking about, but I was like, oh yeah, like that artist does a lot of cheesecake. And she was utterly disgusted by the term cheesecake to describe like that sort of art. Cause if you don't read comics and you're not on the comics internet, of course, that's the bizarrest thing.
1: Right. Like, it makes me picture just a very, very squishy and saccharine human form roughly molded <laughs> into the shape of a woman. And that's not okay. I don't want to think about that anymore. It's
2: funny. I've never actually thought of that as a comic-specific term.
3: It's not, is it? It's for 50s pin-ups, originally. Yeah. But it's something these days you really only see in connection with comics. It's true. And now, Paul, I know
1: we first became aware of your work with the Silver Age recap, so that's kind of its own thing. Like, you basically was- were able to to start from the start.
3: Yeah, no, no, I think I was, I had this idea at one point that I was going to do a, a sort of online index for the entirety of the X-Men. And that obviously is completely impossible. And it never happened. And it was, it was a sort of idea that looked like a good idea at the time. <laughs> but yeah, I obviously started off reading American comics as imports, which you would buy as random newsagent purchases, which you'd no idea how they fitted into things. And then I discovered comic stores and I got completely sucked in to the bigger picture. So I started hunting down the official handbook of the Marvel Universe, which I think was the sort of gateway into the wider Marvel Universe for a lot of people who started reading in, in the mid-80s. And then I discovered at the official Marvel Index – have you ever read the, uh, the official Marvel Index that was put out, the original 80s version that George Orshevsky, I think his name was, did? Uh, no, I actually haven't read that. It's insane. It only got up to about the Dark Phoenix saga for the X-Men, but it goes through every single issue. There's a full-page picture of the cover. There's a list of every single character, where they last appeared, where they next appeared, where they next appeared in chronology, if it's different. They, it, he tracks the appearances of individual objects. Oh. There's a sentence-by-sentence sentence, you know, summary of every single issue.
2: We have to track it's, this down.
3: It's ludicrously detailed. And obviously, there's a more modern X-Men index they did in the 90s, which was sort of much more abbreviated. But the 80s ones are insane, and there's ones for Amazing Spider-Man, Fantastic Four. There's a DC version as well, which um, is is really obscure. And I think they did Crisis on Infinite Earths. And I've always wanted to track down the Crisis on Infinite Earths Index, because that must be unreadable. Oh, man.
1: What I kind of want to track down is the people who wrote those and just have them on the show and just ask them, how? How
3: did you do this? Mark Wade was involved in the Crisis Index.
2: I know exactly how you do those, because I remember working on this stuff when we were doing the Hellboy Companion and doing things like going through issues of BPRD and flagging every single mention of a date, of a period of time, of a time of day, every single page that had visuals that indicated weather or seasonal stuff, you go through like that. You go through and you just track every group or type of thing at a time and you keep cataloging all of it as you're doing it. And I
3: think because something like the Marvel or DC universes keep building on and they just keep adding more and more stuff, they've accumulated more and more continuity as they've gone along. And that's made their continuity an increasingly fascinating thing in it it's become a sort of Heath Robinson machine that is perpetually on the brink of falling apart, but never quite does because somebody always comes in to try and shove it back on course somehow or other. And Grant Morrison, I think, always talks about how superhero universes have become bigger than the, some of their parts and have become something that just has its own momentum and is bigger than any one creator. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of fascinating to me.
2: Well, they've kind of been that from the start. And one of the things that I find most intriguing is that there's a point where continuity starts. Because in the Silver Age and really into the Bronze Age, there weren't really people tracking continuity. You didn't have much in the way of series bibles. You just had folks throwing stuff on the page without a lot of attention to that. So there's a specific point where you see writers and you see editors and you see fans starting to try to reconcile the early lack of continuity with the more cohesive stuff that came later. And trying to find ways for it to fit together. And it becomes this amazing Rube Goldberg causality machine. And I love that challenge. I love the game of that.
3: I think with Marvel, where that sort of piecing together of a bigger universe comes in, is probably with the second generation of creators. But Liam Kirby and Ditko did not care about the Marvel universe except as a device for crossovers. But when you get people like Roy Thomas coming in, the next generation—they're mm. fans who've turned pro—and they're the ones who want to build worlds and make it all fit together into something bigger.
2: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, and that's something you see more and more. You know, we've talked about this before, but I feel like it's worth noting in terms of the continuity that comics are very, very much an asylum run by the inmates. Each generation of comics creators and editors and people who are the keepers of continuity tend to be the letter hacks and fans of the previous generation. You see that directly. I mean, you, you there are folks, for example, like Roy Thomas and like Kurt Busiek, who start appearing in letter columns a good 10 years before they start writing the comics.
1: Or a Joe Duffy was that a way. Joe I Duffy, think. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, that's interesting because I think that's part of maybe what's responsible for the cyclical nature of continuity. That's why you have, you know, as soon as the inmates do take over the asylum with each generation, it's the characters and the concept that they grew up with, and all of a sudden those are back. All of a sudden, you know, it's the old Flash or the old Captain America or whatever, and we just keep going back to the defaults of whatever was going on during that writer's childhood. And I- Luke Cage comes back into circulation as a
3: major character after years in the wilderness. Yeah, exactly.
2: Yes. I mean, I remember I have this theory that you can track when the EIC of Marvel or DC started reading comics from that company by the state that they retcon the universe to, or what they describe as the Real version. I mean, for example, I remember in a very short period of time, not too long after Didio took over at DC and Quesada at Marvel, and each of them was doing this. And, and so, so Didio was like pushing things back and be like, oh, no, and Barry Allen's the Flash again and stuff. And then Cosada was like, yeah, and, and Peter Parker's not married because he's supposed to be single. And I mean, we're in our early 30s. And so for me, Wally West is the Flash. And
1: And Peter Parker has always been married.
2: married. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, too, how hard people impress on those states of the universe as the one real one when they're actually just so massively mutable. Now, I think we each actually brought a favorite continuity tangle to untie here. So we should probably just jump into those. Paul, you want to start us off?
3: Okay. I was trying to think of a really hideous continuity tangle, but a sort of kind of fascinating one as well. And I thought, I've got to go with Kang. Kang the Conqueror, Avengers villain, very much outside your podcast's wheelhouse, as you say, But uh, and to be honest, not a character I've read personally every one of his stories by any stretch of the imagination, but Kang really is where Marvel continuity goes to die or at least have a serious hemorrhage. When Kang first appeared in the 60s, he was a very simple character. He was a guy from the future who was a conqueror and he was going to conquer the present day using his time travel and his future technology and his knowledge, and the Avengers keep driving him away. It's nice and simple, but somehow he just gets more and more complicated as it goes on. And I think there's maybe two reasons for that. The first is, well, he's a time travel character, and time travel stories naturally get complicated. Which it leads to him appearing out of chronological order, trying to interfere with his own past, spawning divergent counterparts, things like that. But then on top of that, there's the urge of writers, particularly in the in the 70s and 80s, to tie everything together. And that's resulted in Kang sucking in a whole load of other characters or being tied to other characters in a way that has ended up merging a bunch of other people into Kang. So as matters stand, Kang is also the same guy as Pharaoh Ramatut who was a slightly earlier character from Fantastic Four who had gone back in time and become an Egyptian pharaoh. He Originally, he was going to be just a later version of Pharaoh Ramatut, but then later they decided that he was going to go back and be a second Pharaoh Ramatut after that. So he becomes first Pharaoh Ramatut, then he's Kang, then after that he's Pharaoh Ramatut again. But the second time, he's a good Pharaoh Ramatut. He's also the same guy as Immortus, the master of time, who is sometimes a villain and sometimes just sort of looking after time. He's also the same guy as the Scarlet Centurion, who once showed up in an Avengers annual. They flirted briefly with the idea that uh, Ramatute might be Doctor Doom, but fortunately that never went anywhere. And he's also Iron Lad from the Young Avengers. So once all of this is piled into one character, you've got a really convoluted piece of continuity. And that might explain why Kang has the unique distinction of having a seven-page entry in the official handbook of the Marvel Universe which includes one and a half pages of (laughs) flowchart. Now
1: that's when you know it's good continuity, when you need a flowchart.
4: How has Jonathan Hickman not done like a big Kang story? I got most flowcharts.
3: Yeah, You would think. What they've got in this is they've got a running strip across the bottom of this whole entry, which shows you where all his appearances, uh, his major appearances go in his personal chronology and also in objective time, and also the publication order. So his personal chronology jumps 4, 35, 16, 24, 11, 13, 14, 25, 5. And that's just the first page. It really is bordering on incomprehensible. On top of that flowchart, there's also an explanatory note which extends over the final two pages. This is one of the most complicated characters in the history of the Marvel Universe if you attempt to take it all at face value. In the 1980s, they had a go at rationalizing him by saying that he had killed all the other versions of Kang and absorbed all their memories because he's a time traveler. They had lots of different versions of Kang flying around. The very next thing he does is to encounter the Council of Cross Time Kangs who are other Kangs. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I really want a Council of Cross Time Miles. This is my new goal. All right, bucket list.
3: That was then slightly retconned in Avengers Forever, which decided that, in fact, just before meeting the Council of Cross-Time Kangs, he'd split himself into two Kangs, both of whom were still the Prime Kang. The Kang who joins the Council of Cross-Time Kangs is, inexplicably, Kang of (laughs) Earth-123488.23497. Wow. Yes, I know. (laughs) Um, He spends a lot of his time pining after a woman called Ravonna because she was the love interest in one of his 60s stories. And basically, in the future time which he's conquered, she is the princess of this little tiny surviving kingdom, which he sort of tolerates because his would-be beloved is in there. There are at least two major divergent versions of Ravonna. One of them first shows up in the Council of Cross-Time Kangs, calling herself Kang Nebula because the writer originally intended her to be Nebula, the daughter of Thanos. So you have Kang Nebula, who's meant to be the daughter of Thanos, is inexplicably later retconned into being a second Ravonna, and then goes on to become a minor Avengers villain called Terminatrix. He was the villain responsible for The Crossing, Avengers The Crossing, maybe the most incomprehensible crossover of all time. That's the one that revealed that he had been manipulating Iron Man since the beginning of Iron Man's career, which was all retconned out after Hero's Return. Avengers Forever later revealed that in fact it wasn't Kang who was responsible for manipulating Iron Man it was Immortus who of course is also Kang
2: <laughs> It all becomes so clear I kind of at this point I've kind of I'm looking at my notes and I feel like I brought a knife to a gunfight <laughs> And you brought a knife um, to a Kang
3: fight Yeah The crossing is such an incomprehensible crossover that as I remember Avengers Forever which was written by Kurt Busiek who can normally explain away anything Ends up explaining away Avengers The Crossing by saying that it was all an attempt to confuse people. (laughs) (laughs) How very meta. That's as good as they could manage. And Kang has 23 children, all of whom were called Marcus. (laughs) (laughs) You know, if you've got a theme and you really like it, you just go with it. Exactly. Apparently, the idea was he was going to keep having children until he managed to create a Marcus Kang, who would be a great warrior. So he just kept going until he got one that had the right name and would meet all the other criteria. So obviously, on the face of it, Kang is a character who should not work in the slightest. His history is an absolute mess. And yet somehow he has endured for decades. And I think maybe there's broadly two reasons for that. The first is that he's a time travel character. And Paradox... And the idea of stories not quite making sense and teetering on the verge of making no sense at all is kind of what people like about time travel stories. So he gets a sort of get out of jail free card because his basic gimmick is that he's a time travel guy. And that sort of gives him a license not to make any sense. But also, there's still a core idea in there that I think people can hang on to, which is that first, he's a lunatic conqueror who jumps around in time and tries to conquer his own past. But second, that he doesn't like the person he becomes. He knows that at a later point in his timeline, he's going to become a much nicer version of Pharaoh Ramatute, which he doesn't like because he thinks he's a manly conqueror. He knows he's going to go on and become Immortus, and he doesn't like Immortus either, because even though Immortus is not a nice guy, he's sort of outgrown Kang's dreams of military conquest. Immortus, at least in a lot of versions, is a guy who's into very subtle butterfly effect manipulations to alter history the way he wants it to go. And Kang seems to think that's almost cheating. That's not real conquest. That's not what Kang thinks makes him a man. So underneath all of this utter mess of continuity, you do have this basic idea of Kang fighting with himself at different points in his life, trying to change his own past and avoid his own future. And I think there's something in there that people can hang on to and makes him work as a character, even though his history is genuinely almost totally incomprehensible.
2: Wow. I am going to say something that I never, ever, ever thought that I would say, which is you have just made X-Men continuity sound lucid. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. That's, this is, I mean, I... We're, Miles and I are sitting next to each other and we've just been just sort of staring at each other with our jaws on the floor. Cause this is my entire context for Kang is the Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes cartoon. I've read no Kang stories in comics. And even that is a, a mess of a timeline. Not only that it's that complicated, but that you just explained it coherently is phenomenal.
3: Well, I mean, to be fair, t- t- that's, it, t- it sounds convoluted because it's 50 years' worth of stuff boiled down into 10 minutes, which doesn't help in terms of making it sound overcomplicated. But I hope it's somewhat coherent. So it's, like I say, I'm sure there's Avengers fans who know the character m- in much more detail than I do, uh, screaming about all the things I've got slightly wrong. But that is the general thrust of the guy. I've got two
4: things that I'd like to add to type, if you don't mind, just, sure. just to make it a bit more confusing and upsetting. One quite recent, one not. The one that's not very recent, and I think... Rachel Miles, you have discussed this on the show. Paul said Kanga's had 23 children, all named Marcus. One of those Marcuses is the guy who brainwashed and impregnated Carol Danvers. Danvers. Yeah.
1: Oh yeah, in that truly unfortunate Avenger story.
4: And the second one is, there's a version of Rivonna that came out a couple of years ago in Matterfaction and Michael Red's FF that turns out to be a grown-up Valeria Richards.
1: Wow! Because working in the Richards clan just makes it that much tanglier. Well, if there's any, oh, I forgot
3: to mention that he's also Nathaniel (laughs) Richards' descendant. (laughs) Kang was born on a world called Other Earth, which is basically supposed to be a world where they didn't have the Dark Ages and rushed ahead to nuclear oblivion. And he sort of conquers when they pick up the pieces. And then they revealed that he is a descendant of Nathaniel Richards, uh, Mister Fantastic's dad, but not the counterpart of Nathaniel Richards from his world, the original Nathaniel Richards, who for some reason goes to live on his world and sort of sets up life there. And Kang's real name is Nathaniel Richards. Wow.
4: Huh. But there's only one Nathaniel Richards, Reed Richards' father, because Immortus took every Nathaniel Richards from the multiverse and made them fight until there was one left. Oh. Which is why all the alternate versions of Reed Richards are screwed up, is because they grew up without Nathaniel Richards' and ours is the best version of Reed
2: Richards. That's a little because, terrifying. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> That's the best you could do, Nathaniel.
2: So, King is kind of a distilled example of just a, a tangled timeline but there's another type of continuity that comes up that's always a lot of fun and that's the kind that comes out of creative clashes because when you've got a comic that's been around for 50 years it's going through a whole bunch of different writers a whole bunch of different editors a whole bunch of different sets of interpretations and intentions and miles i think you brought something that speaks kind of uniquely and specifically to that
1: indeed i did so, listeners of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men will know that we have mostly covered the Chris Claremont era of X-Men in the 70s and the 80s, where everything was relatively consistent. Occasionally, Claremont and his collaborators would contradict each other, but for the most part, it was part of one big plan.
2: Well, and occasionally you get things that clash with the Silver Age when there wasn't that clear timeline. But right.
1: Yeah. But by and large, it's relatively tight and consistent. And then you get to the 90s, and Chris Claremont leaves Marvel for a while And a bunch of other writers are working together, and they all have their own visions of what they want to do. So you'll have these long-running plot lines like Chris Claremont used to have, and sometimes they'll just get abandoned and turned into something else or greatly transformed when another writer doesn't like where they were going before. And what I'm going to talk about is The Third Summer's Brother. Which one? Exactly. So... Where this all started was that there was an offhand comment by Mr. Sinister to Cyclops, sometime in the 90s, about how he didn't want Cyclops or his brothers to get the legacy virus, which was this sort of big AIDS analog going on at the time. And Cyclops said, wait, brothers? And Sinister said, oh ha ha ha, I must have misspoken. Sinister, Sinister, Sinister. And that's where it was left for a little while, and of course the readers, who were obsessed with these sort of details, and who didn't catch that it was just kind of a big Star Wars ripoff, were frothing at the mouth for the identity of the third Summers brother. And so, different writers started going in different directions with that. Now, a little bit of background, some of this will be repeats for people who have heard most of our show, but Cyclops and Havoc are the two Summers brothers that we've known about for the majority of X-Men continuity, Scott and Alex Summers. Now, they became, they thought, orphans when they were kids. They were flying in a plane with their parents, Christopher and Catherine Anne, and the plane started to blow up. There was one parachute that was given to the two Summers brothers. They escaped. The plane exploded. Except in reality, what happened was a Shi'ar spaceship, the Shi'ar being space bird jerks that rule a lot of the universe, captured Christopher and Catherine Anne. Now, Catherine Anne became a concubine of Mad Emperor Ken of the Shi'ar, and Christopher was sent to a slave planet after he tried and failed to rescue her. And that's pretty much what we knew about for a while. Catherine Ann got killed, apparently, and Christopher ended up becoming the space pirate Corsair, as one does. So, all we really knew about were Scott and Alex, the two Summers brothers. Until Sinister's Line. Now, there's one potential third Summers brother that I think is certainly my personal favorite, and also probably one of the most 90s characters ever created in comics, ever. And that is... Adam X, the Xtreme. I'd like to point out that it's spelled X-T-R-E-M-E, as one does in the 90s.
2: His secondary mutation is that he is literally the incarnation of everything that visually defined 90s comics.
1: I'm pretty sure there's Limp Biscuit playing in the background wherever he goes and he doesn't even notice it anymore. So his origin, supposedly, he was born in a farming village on a Shi'ar planet, and then that planet ended up getting purged by some Shi'ar bad guys. He ended up getting sent to Earth, where he lost all of his memory, and was adopted by a guy who ended up naming him The Extreme due to his temper and abilities. Who the names record,
2: their kid that?
1: He was just sort of a generic, bladed, limp-biscuit-listening, uh, you know, slamming Mountain Dew kind of guy for a while, until... Fabian Nisieza started to poke more into it.
2: Well, he had powers, though, too, right? Like, the reason he had the blades was his powers. He could make people's blood explode, but only if it was exposed to air.
1: Yes, again, 90s as hell. But where the continuity sort of starts is where he meets Philip Summers, who is Cyclops' grandfather, Corsair's father, out in the wilderness of Alaska when his plane crashes, and he helps him out. Now, More he notes, people
2: meet the Summers family, like, that specific way, because that's how Madeline Pryor got there, too.
1: It's true. Basically, plane crashes and Summers go together like two things that go together. And so, yes, Adam X noticed he felt a connection, a connection of the heart, presumably, to Philip Summers. Jean Grey showed up shortly thereafter to say that she telepathically felt that Adam X had a connection to the Summers family. That's one of the things I love about telepathy, is it just lets the writers do whatever they want plot-wise. It's kind of like you were talking about with Kang, with uh, time travel as sort of a writer's cheat. It's that, but telepathy. And so, as time went on, we got more and more hints of this, until eventually, in an issue of Captain Marvel, when they were fighting everybody's favorite bondage viking, Eric the Red, Adam X learned that he was, in fact, the son of Mad Emperor Ken and an unnamed human woman who he'd taken as a slave. Very clear to everyone at the time who that was supposed to be. It was supposed to be Catherine Anne Summers. You know, the plot line was almost closed up, this continuity was almost finished— And then Fabian Nassieza left Marvel, and that stopped being the case, and Adam X stopped being this guy with an interesting, if ridiculous, set of continuity and ended up just being a 90s-tacular Fred Durst-looking douchebag. And I don't know if I like him better or worse that way, but, so that was completely abandoned, and that led us to the real Third Summer's brother, who we've actually covered in an issue very near the beginning of the podcast. Now, there were a few false starts over the years, which I'll get to, but eventually it turned out that the, quote, real Summer's brother was created in a series called X-Men Deadly Genesis. We've talked about this in past episodes. It's
2: basically a retcon of the events around giant Size X-Men number one, and I don't know if it's the most, the second most anticlimactic resolution to a decades-long tease because the 12 is pretty high up there.
1: So, yeah, uh, Kid Vulcan, he ended up being part of a secret team of X-Men that Moira McTaggart had that was killed on Krakoa in the background of Giant Size X-Men number one. And then Xavier erased everybody's mind and Vulcan ended up getting really pissed and uh, running the Shi'ar Empire and murdering a lot of people, including Corsair, but only temporarily. So that's where it went. And, and you then it killed him. Well, Maybe. And that's where it ended up going, and you know what? A letdown. Kid Vulcan was maybe a more a character you could take more seriously than the blade-covered, skateboard-riding, do-slamming, Slim Jim-snapping Adam X, but man, he would have fit so well beside the uber-serious Cyclops and the Conflicted Havoc, just being ridiculous and calling everyone bro. I'm sad about that. Now, there were a couple of other attempts at Third Summer's Brothers. One of them was actually Gambit, which I think not a lot of people know about, and the early hinting about that was Uh, It was very subtle. It was just that Gambit had hair kind of like Cyclops and had red eyes, just like Cyclops doesn't.
2: Well, and he's got backstory with Sinister, too. I think they had that in before he was being teased. No, that came after. No,
1: the Sinister stuff didn't come until much later. There was really very little going on. The only other clue that I know of was that Gambit's childhood was mysterious. And so fans, of course, started filling in the blanks obsessively, especially after Mr. Sinister's third Summers Brothers reveal. Now, that ended up not going anywhere, but in the X-Men The End series that Chris Claremont wrote, which was a non-canon, sort of, The Last X-Men story ever, it turned out that Gambit was really a clone, a genetic construct, created from the DNA of Cyclops and Mr. Sinister together. Because, why the hell not?
2: That's not actually a sibling, though. That's like a partial clone.
1: It's a total cheat. But at one point, Fabian Nicieza, who had been responsible for the Adam X stuff, was asked, What's your opinion of the revelation of Gambit being the character in question over in X-Men The End? And he replied, My opinion is that I screwed up plenty of Chris's stories. He's more than welcome to screw up one of mine. So, there's Gambit. Now, my favorite and the final potential third Summer's brother that I'm going to cover is none other than freaking Apocalypse. Now, I just found out about this recently, and I was really sad that I missed it, because that means I went for years and years without knowing about this insane, kind of dumb, time-travel retcon that never happened. So, this was intended during a run of Cable. Apparently... Apocalypse was originally an unknown pre-Catherine Anne love child of Corsair, because of course, with a mustache like that, Christopher Summers is going to have love children all over the place. And this love child was then captured by a random time traveler who took this child way back in time to ancient Egypt and abandoned him for some reason that maybe would have been explained later, where he ended up growing up into a godlike figure called En-Sabah Noor, then manipulating his own descendants, his own bloodline, such that one of them would be in Victorian England, when Cyclops and Jean Grey happens to be randomly sent back in time so he could meet them, which means that the X-Gene in the Summers family tree is because... Apocalypse, who is a descendant of Cyclops' dad, went back in time to be his own progenitor and make sure that the genetics were there so he could be born that way. I
2: should add that the pertinent detail about the guy in Victorian England is that when he emigrated to the U.S., he changed his last name to Summers and is Cyclops' several greats' grandfather. We covered that in a cold open a few episodes back. The extent to which that gets into weird quasi-incestuous territory is kind of amazing. Oh,
1: some of the best retcons do. That's what I enjoy. Time travel, man. About, well, partially time travel, but just complex continuity in general, is that the more you mess with it, the more not okay it tends to get. And the more awesome it tends to get, because you're just cramming more and more stuff into an unnecessarily complex topic, and it's just, it's got everything you ever would possibly need, good or bad.
2: So speaking of cramming a lot of stuff into a topic... Kieran, I think you've brought the biggest one to the table, and that is the entire DC multiverse. Now, we've been in Marvel territory so far. Miles and I are definitely mostly Marvel readers. I've said before, my DCU is basically the DC animated universe plus Starman. So this is entirely new territory for me. Tell us about the multiverse.
4: Yeah, I think, because I know you're especially not a fan of Barry Island, by the end of it. You're going to actually loathe him.
2: No, but I also, I'm, I'm okay with Barry Allen. I just resent that he's not Wally West. Like he seems okay. fine. He's just, you know, not my flash.
4: Just just wait till the end of uh this then. And also though, what I'm about to talk about, we wouldn't have Starman without it. So it's kind of good and bad, but yeah, like Miles was saying, the more you mess with stuff, the worse it gets. This is the epitome of that. So when DC Comics started, or even before it was DC Comics, you had the Golden Age characters, so Superman, Batman, but then characters that you might have heard of, like The Flash, Green Lantern, The Atom, people like that, they weren't the characters that you might be aware of. They were the Golden Age versions. so rather than Barry Allen, you had Jay Garrick rather than Hal Jordan. You had Alan Scott and so on. And then a bunch of those comics went away. Superman and Batman, are pretty much the only ones that carried on through that down period of, like, the 50s, back into the 60s. And, or well, like, late 50s, early 60s. But in The Flash, number 123, it picks up from Jay Garrick's numbering, so it's not actually 123 issues of Barry Allen. It's a lot earlier on than you think. Gardner, Fox, and Carmine and Fittino introduce the issue, The Flash of Two Worlds. It's a very, very famous cover. You've probably seen it or seen some version of it, where a man is, like, in the middle of the cover, there's a girl about to fall on him, and it says, Flash, help me. And there's a wall, and either side of the wall, there's Barry Allen and Jay Garrick saying, I'm coming. And that was the first instance of Earth 2. So Earth 1 is where Barry Allen, Hal Jordan, all those characters are. Earth 2 is where all the Golden Age happened, and things kept happening. You just didn't see comics of them. So that was the multiverse. And Barry Allen got there through like vibrational changes, because he can also vibrations. He found an earth with different vibrations to our own that goes on for a few years two years later there's crisis on earth one which is a justice league story that crosses the justice league with the justice society which is the golden age story and then over the next couple of decades dc amass a hefty chunk of alternate earths not just their own alternate earths like earth three which is where all the goodies are baddies and vice versa so you have the crime syndicate of america instead of the justice league there's also earth four which is where the Charlton characters are so Blue Beetle, the question, the characters that would influence Watchmen. Or Earth-S, which is where the Fawcett characters like Captain Marvel, his now Shazam, and like Bulleteer, characters like that. And then there's Earth-X, which is the quality comics characters like Uncle Sam and the Freedom Fighters and Plastic Man. And there's a bunch more besides. But to celebrate DC Comics' pending 50th anniversary in the mid-80s, Marvel Wolfman and George Perez are going to do a big crossover event like Marvel Secret Wars, where they decide, okay, it's 50 years of DC Universe let's fix this so they do crisis on infinite earths which the basic premise for that is there's a guy called the monitor who is basically like uatu the watcher from marvel but for universes and there's the anti-monitor which i still think is a really dumb name because <laughs> out of the context of the monitor because the anti-monitor stays around a lot longer than the monitor does so he's just the anti-monitor that just implies to be, just, a guy just doesn't, doesn't look at the screen exactly <laughs> yeah. He's just been given a new name by Jeff Johns in Just League, which I'm kind of okay with. I'm not really going to talk about it here, but it's kind of an interesting idea. He's like Galactus, but for multi- universes. So there's this like just giant white wave that's just spreading through the multiverse and taking out universes and basically deleting them, like erasing them. He's not even like doing it for energy. I don't think he's just erasing them. And Christ on Infinite Earths happens. Supergirl dies, Barry Allen dies, and five universes are saved by the Monitor. So that's the ones I mentioned, Earth 1, Earth 2, Earth 4, Earth S, and Earth X. And they're mushed into one new Earth with a new history, a new continuity, and very, very, very few people are aware that there were changes. People remember the crisis, but they don't realize, oh, that's Blue Beetle. He's from Earth 4. Blue Beetle always existed on this new Earth. Does that make sense?
2: Does this Earth have a designation?
4: This is just Earth. Okay. For now. For now.
3: It's just the DC universe after yeah. Crisis, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah, the multiverse doesn't
4: exist anymore. It's just this one Earth. And there's some other characters that are going to be important from Crisis. There's the Superman and Lewis Lane of Earth 2, so the golden age Superman, who looks like Superman but has, like, Reed Richards samples. There's Alexander Luther of Earth 3, who is the good Lex Luther, who wears, like, a weird gold bodysuit and has ginger hair. And there's Superboy of Earth Prime. Earth Prime is our Earth. Well, that's how it started, but then they introduced the Superboy, which is a whole other thing. And there's a really good adaptation of kind of the idea that I'm not going to get into. But yeah, those are the characters, Wait. they head off to spend the rest of their days in a paradise dimension.
2: Wait, when you say Earth Prime is our Earth, do you mean main DCU Earth? Or do you mean like us now here, world without superheroes, actual Earth?
3: Yeah, the second one.
4: But, Alex, it's, they, but with the they Superboy. They
3: Silver Age Flash stories where the Flash comes to literally the world where he meets his writer wow, that's some Grant Morrison stuff going on way earlier.
2: Or, you know, the, the Jack Kirby is God in the Marvel Universe stuff.
1: Oh, right, from Fantastic Four.
2: Yeah.
4: So yeah, those four characters go away. And it's basically, Chris Sims describes this as Superman of golden age, being given his retirement, like, thank you for everything you did. You started superheroes. We don't need you anymore. Or that's a bit mean. But like, go have a nice forever. Like, you've earned this. So there's some changes to continuity. Uh, like, Superman was never Superboy. He, like, moved to Metropolis and became Superman. Wonder Woman shows up after Crisis as if she's just showing up for the first time. So there's, like, no Wonder Woman history before Crisis. I'm going to be saying if that makes sense a lot, especially because <laughs> I know this is primarily a Marvel podcast. And it's basically a streamlining of characters to their most understandable, and that was the idea, until Zero Hour. Zero Hour comes a couple of years later in the 90s because Crisis left a bunch of plot holes, like the Legion of Superheroes, they were originally built around Superboy stories and they were inspired by Superboy, but now Superboy never existed, so they needed to figure out what influenced the Legion of Superheroes. Zero Hour was subtitled A Crisis in Time and was meant to do for the timeline, linearly, what Crisis did for the multiverse.
0: Holy the bad guys man.
4: of Zero Hour are Extant, who is formerly Hawk of Hawk and Dove, and Parallax, who is Hal Jordan, Green Lantern, Gone Rogue, after Coast city was destroyed by the cyborg Superman.
2: Huh.
4: Zero Hour was meant to clear up complicated continuity, like the various Hawkmen, Supergirls, Wonder etc. Because do you guys know about Wonder Girl?
1: Oh, Donna Troy. Yeah. I have heard of the tangle that is her. Well, she's
4: one of the Wonder Girls. Right. Yeah. Uh, what happened with Wonder Girl, basically, was she was introduced in Teen Titans as Teenage Wonder Woman, like the Wonder Woman's, Wonder Woman's Robin, basically. But the Teen Titans writers didn't realize that the Wonder Girl stories that were coming out in Wonder Woman were stories of a young Wonder Woman, like a young Diana Prince. So Wonder Girl is a character that didn't exist and they like just kind of made her by accident. So there's been loads of attempts to try and explain who she is and every time it gets worse. But yeah, so Zero R was meant to clear up complicated continuity like that, especially on Hawkman, who is at various times a reincarnated Egyptian prince or a space cop from a planet of Hawk people. Potato, I, I feel like potato. if
2: there's anything we learned from King, it's that those aren't necessarily mutually exclusive backstories.
3: <laughs> they introduced two conflicting versions of Hawkman after Crisis, didn't they? They just failed to coordinate what version of Hawkman it was actually going to be. And the answer ended up being both.
4: Yeah. And I've been saying since episode one of Journey into Misery that we're going to do Hawkman at episode 50, (laughs) which is probably around now for publishing of this episode because we're currently on episode 43. So I'm hesitant about that, but it's going to happen. It should be up if you want to listen to me talk all about the various Hawksmen. So you have zero hour and that tries to slim things down. And then a couple of years later we introduced to the concept of hyper time hyper time i think is a really cool concept and it's one that i kind of miss uh, but it does always require explaining it's not just you get it instantly it's a mark wade idea primarily and grant morrison uses it a lot but i think it's kind of simple once you get it rather than multiple earths there are multiple timelines like a river and sometimes they split off and that's it they just go and that's the timeline now sometimes they merge back in and stuff will change or like and an example that comes up, I remember once, is a way to explain why Superboy had different coloured eyes for five issues. Because <laughs> <laughs> like that the hyper-time intersected. But yeah, it, it was maybe a bit too confusing for new readers. It was officially abandoned in 2005 when Dan DiDio stated that wasn't how things were anymore, as we got ready for Infinite Crisis, which was the 20th anniversary of Crisis on Infinite Earths, which is a pretty much direct sequel to it. So, Infinite Crisis, direct sequel, which saw Superboy Prime and Alexander Luthor go mad from their time in the heaven dimension and try and bring their dead worlds back. You may have heard of um, the Jason Todd thing, where Jason Todd was brought back to life because Superboy Prime punched a wall. Yeah. Like, Superboy Prime broke out of his reality by basically punching on the walls of reality.
1: If I've learned one and thing from comics and video games, it's that that's how you solve any sort of conflict, is you just punch it, and somehow that will work.
2: I do like the idea of being able to just punch reality as a whole, though. That's a very superhero comic concept and one I think that a number of fans would identify with the urge <laughs> to do.
4: So Infinite Crisis happens and this ends with the five Earths that make Earth up being split for a bit because they get like characters from each Earth. So I think they got like, Martian Manhunter, maybe Wildcat, Black Adam, a Charlton character and a quality character. And they put them in this big machine. They split the five Earths up a bit Everything re-coalesces, but that triggers a bunch of changes once again meant to streamline characters like Hawkman, Wonder Girl, and the Legion. Superman was once again Superboy and worked with the Legion in his past, although the Legion gets rebooted later, and that's another thing for another time. And another change that happened after Zero Hour was that Batman's parents were killed by an unknown assailant, and after Infinite Crisis, that's changed back to Joe Chill. There's one more big development from Infinite Crisis that was discovered in the Series 52. 52 was called 52 because it was a weekly series that ran for an entire year and towards the end of the book you discover that because of Infinite Crisis the multiverse was actually brought back as a
2: result of the things that happened in Infinite Crisis. I actually read that as it was coming out and I had no idea what was happening (laughs) during any of it but I really liked the question stories.
4: I came into 52 with like issue 48 because that was around the time I was getting into comics and getting into the DC universe as 52 was wrapping up. I'll just buy the last couple of issues of this. So what you find out Yes, yeah, there's these 52 Earths, like, rather than, like, Infinite Earths before, there's 52 Earths, and they're later catalogued last year by Grant Morrison in Multiversity, which we can talk about, but we don't really need to. And same goes for Final Crisis, kind of. You might think Final Crisis has come up in this, but there's no big changes to continuity that come from Final Crisis, except Barry Allen comes back. But, yeah, in 52, you find out that Mr. Mind, do you guys know who Mr. Mind is? Is anyone not?
3: Nope. Is Mr. Mind the little mind-controlling caterpillar from the Captain Marvel stories?
4: Yeah, Mr. Mind, he's a tiny caterpillar. He's the size of a caterpillar. He's this really cute cartoon caterpillar. And he wears like a little radio around his neck so you can hear like what he's saying.
3: Because he's a caterpillar.
4: Turns out he wormed his way into Skeets, who is Booster Gold's robotic buddy. And used Skeets as a cocoon to metamorphosize into a scary murder moth and tried to eat the multiverse. But Booster Gold traps him back inside skeets and throws him backwards through time like a football, saving the day.
1: I love everything about that sentence that you just said.
2: I love that Booster Gold gets a moment in the sun, too. Yeah, Booster Gold and the Question Mm -hmm. and Elongated Man, I think,
4: are the highlights of 52 for me. I remember the the Elongated Man stuff. So that's what you have. You have the 52 universes, and that's how we have for like six years or so until Flashpoint. And this is the part where if you don't hate Barry Allen, you're going to... (laughs) <laughs> because what happens in Flashpoint is you open up Flashpoint number one and everything's changed and it's basically a Age of Apocalypse style universe where everything's radically different because of an event that happened. Someone changed time and everything's different. Superman was found by the government and kept in a cell away from sunlight. So he's really skinny and emaciated. Batman is Thomas Wayne because Bruce was the one that was murdered in the alley, not Thomas and Martha and Martha is the Joker and Thomas Wayne is Batman. It's not a very good series, but in it's Flashpoint, not. Barry Allen wakes up and he's the only one who remembers how Earth should be. And he's like, I know who did this. It was Professor Zoom, the reverse Flash. Because, And also, if people only listen to Marvel and I'm seeing things like Professor Zoom, the reverse Flash, I can't imagine what they're thinking right now. <laughs> I
2: mean, I, it sounds like home to me. I'm mm. pretty used to taking this stuff at face value. <laughs> So if you're a Marvel um,
3: fan, you've tuned in to thinking that Doctor Doom's a perfectly reasonable name for a villain. Yeah.
2: There is an actual Doctor Doom. Like I remember stumbling across this online, who's a professor somewhere in New England. So I stand by Doctor Doom being a reasonable name, because it's a real one.
4: So when Barry Allen came back after Final Crisis and in Flash Rebirth, they did a retcon where Barry Allen's mother was dead, and Barry Allen's parents were always alive. And like, okay, that's weird. That was never in his history before. Turns out Professor Zoom went back in time, killed Barry's mum, and framed his dad for it. That gave Barry, like, lots of, like, man angst. So, Barry wakes up in Flashpoint universe and is like, Professor Zoom did this. Towards the end of the series, Professor Zoom shows up and he's like, no, I didn't do this. You did this. Do you not remember? And Barry Allen caused Flashpoint by going back in time himself and saving his mother? That caused a butterfly effect because he's not, like, as knowledgeable about how to change time as Professor Zoom is. So that had a knock-on effect, which caused the Flashpoint universe, because Barry Allen was selfish enough to go back and do that. Then Barry Allen had to fix things by running really fast, because that's how the Flash fixes things. And this woman shows up called Pandora, and she goes, you have a chance to fix things to how they always were. There were these three timelines that were split, and that's the DC universe, the Vertigo characters like Constantine and something, and the Wildstorm universe. So Barry Allen fixes things, he makes this new Earth that is like what happened after Crisis but forwarding in like the Wildstorm characters and the Vertigo characters and just changing everything.
2: Wasn't Milestone supposed to have been part of that as well or is that a different event?
4: Yeah, Milestone was forwarded into that but now Milestone has been forwarded back out of that because there's a series of Milestone graphic novels that are coming out. Right. So the Milestone characters probably still exist in the New 52 but they're not going to be showing up in the New 52. I think they've been given one of the spare Earths. (laughs) So I describe Barry Allen as history's greatest monster, or the DC Universe's greatest monster, at least, because he went back in time to save his mother, which, yeah, I get it, Barry, but you're messing with the time stream. And that erased Wally West, as we know him. It erased Donna Troy. It erased Superman and Lois Lane's marriage. It erased his own marriage. Barry Allen just caused this catastrophic thing to where people, his friends of his, never existed. That calls the new 52 as we know it. And that's pretty much where we are now.
3: Except then maybe introduce the multiverse and multiversity. Well, that's building off stuff from 52. Yeah. Yeah. How is
2: multiversity as a primer? Like, again, you know, this is so far outside of my belly. Could I pick that up, go through it, and sort of get a reasonable understanding of the workings of the multiverse?
3: Oh, multiversity is a weird thing. It's basically a lot of one shots, which all take place on different universes. And there's a very loose plot that they all come in towards. But it's not really a continuity guide multiverse. It's more Grant Morrison doing his all sorts of different versions of what a superhero universe could be. It's not (laughs) really a continuity pointer. There is the multiversity handbook. Which is one issue, but that's which also is also
4: an issue in multiversity. Like, yeah, that's, that's really
3: good. But that's like that also is,
4: part of the story of multiversity as well. Like, people in the multiversity handbook read the multiversity handbook.
1: Because Grant Morrison.
4: The villain of multiversity is your hands. But, like, your yeah. hands turning the page turn out to be the villain. Well,
2: that, that's very Super Smash Brothers. It kind of
3: is. Yeah, it is. It really <laughs> is.
4: Oh, but my wow. impression um, has
3: always been that where DC got into so many problems, until the New 52, which pretty much was a hard reboot of the whole thing, was they kept trying to do partial reboots without actually thinking it through very much. So immediately after Crisis, you had some characters who'd been radically altered. You had some like Wonder Woman who were starting completely from scratch. And you had other books that were just trying to carry on as if nothing had happened. But some of those other books depended on the existence of the Justice Society, half of whose characters had just disappeared. The Legion of Superheroes depended on Superboy, who'd just disappeared. Hawkman's entire status quo was a mess. And you then get all these attempted fixes, which pretty much carry on with decreasing success until eventually they throw up their hands and have to do yet another reboot. So to understand what's going on in post-crisis DC, I guess I've always imagined it as being like a couple of builders who just knocked down an internal wall to try and make some more space, looking up and going, I think that might have been load-bearing. <laughs> so it's the Winchester house.
2: I mean, DC continuity is literally the Winchester mystery house. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah.
4: Wow. But also, like they said after 52, none of the crises has happened, which I'm not too sure about because Batman died in Final Crisis, and that's a continuity point in the 52, that Batman died fighting Darkseid and went away, but Final Crisis never happened. But also recently introduced in Justice League, because Justice League at the moment is doing this big anti-Monitor versus dark side story, and you find out that in like the macro continuity of the DC Universe, the Crisis did happen, and there's people on Metron saying the multiverse can't stand another Crisis. So within the micro continuity of just the New Fifty Two, the Crisis has never happened. But DC also acknowledges that they had to have happened to get the New Fifty Two
1: wow, spit and bailing wire, the DC comics continuity story.
3: This is where hypertime was a good idea in theory, but never actually works in practice. But I I loved hypertime. Once you twig that the basic idea of hypertime is that continuity in the DC universe works exactly the same way it does from our point of view looking in, that it's how the ever-shifting DC continuity looks from inside the DC universe, that's hypertime. That was the idea. But it's so hard to explain without making it metatextual that they could never actually make it work properly in a story. Oh, man. Well, I think we're going to take the focus to a much, much narrower one here
1: and to possibly the central continuity tangle of everything that Rachel and I have covered to this point. So, Rachel, what are you going to tell us about?
2: This isn't actually what I wanted to talk about, because what I wanted to talk about was Hickman's lead up to Secret Wars is the event that will have just wrapped up when this airs and is closing now as we're recording it, because it's an amazing bit of continuity choreography. But X-Men podcast, X-Men subjects, and also, I will literally never turn down an opportunity to explain Cable.
4: Before you start, Rachel, I will say that there is a journey into misery. Just to get a little plug and moan here, we did a two-hour journey into misery on Jonathan Hickman's Avengers, New Avengers, lead-up to Secret Wars. So if that is something you're interested in listening to, if you check our backlog, which I'm sure there'll be links to in the as mentioned, then you can find that specific explanation as to how we got to Secret Wars.
2: Cool. And we'll drop that. And actually, we can all go through and just basically have a quick reference link section to episodes of our respective podcasts if you want to hear deeper dives into any of the subjects that we've touched on today. But now Cable. Okay, so I love Cable. And I love Cable because he is an incredibly versatile capsule tool for explaining how superhero comics continuity does and doesn't work. He is a multiple stage retcon whose own origin story is spectacularly convoluted in pretty much every way that X-Men origin stories can be, and whose existence and the storylines, you know, built around him have just repeatedly thrown wrenches into the Marvel Universe. Within the first basic timeline of Cable's backstory, you've got multi-generational clones and um, genetic manipulation, huge amounts of time travel, you know, secret identities, hidden identities, fake identities, and none of it was planned,
1: Right. From what I recall, when Cable was first created by Rob Liefeld, he just wanted a guy with a cool-looking cyborg arm and eye.
2: Right. Cable was created basically to be a contrast to Professor X, to be a military leader of the X-Men, or in his case, of the New Mutants. Cable's timeline, from Cable's point of view, runs roughly as follows. Nathan Christopher Charles Summers is born in X-Men 200's Trial of Magneto issue, December 1985. He is almost immediately thereafter kidnapped by Sinister and the Marauders. And he gets shunted around from location to location. I believe he spends a few months in the orphanage where Scott grew up, which Sinister secretly ran and was at least one child at under, you know, various names and disguises. He will eventually be kidnapped from there by Madeline Pryor and by the demons during Inferno. And they're planning to sacrifice him to basically open a portal to hell in New York. He gets rescued. He lives with X Factor for a while, um, with Scott and Gene basically co-parenting. Gene has, at this point, absorbed all of Madeline's memories, including, you know, Nathan Christopher's early life and, you know, all of the mom skills. And they've managed to manufacture a force field around him. So he's basically adventure Baby for a few months. And then, during this time, during all of this, Cable shows up in New Mutants. Now, again, we're going through Nathan's timeline, not sequential events. So the order things happened for him. He runs around with X Factor for a while. And then... Apocalypse shows up and infects him with a techno-organic virus. Now, this is the techno-organic virus that is a running chain through a huge number of X-Men crossover events. It's the original basis or part of the basis of the legacy virus. There's a universe where they've melded and basically wiped out the entire population. It's not the main one. It's part of how Apocalypse makes his horsemen. It's, you know, responsible to some extent for Archangel. And it's derived originally through, again, a number of time loops from Warlock and the Technarchy. So Apocalypse infects baby Nathan Christopher with this, and he is going to die. When a mysterious woman from the far future shows up and says, Hey, we can save your kid, but we have to take him several thousand years into the future. You're probably never going to see him again, but we can totally do it. And, you know, Scott reluctantly says, well, yeah, okay, I guess, you know, you do what you got to do. Sends the kid into the future. He arrives in the future, and very, very shortly thereafter, he's absorbed into the Ascani cult. The Ascani cult is a rebel movement against Apocalypse, who is the absolute ruler of this future world. And the leader of the Ascani cult is a time-displaced Rachel Summers. Now, Rachel Summers is the kid of Scott and Jean from Earth 811, which is the Earth where Jean Grey merged with the Phoenix Force instead of being replaced with it. It's the Earth of Days of Future Past. And she exists at this point in a couple different simultaneous incarnations in the time stream. So she doesn't just have past and future versions. She's actually split. And the Ascani version of her is in the far future and comes out of the version who jumped into the time stream to save Captain Britain partway through Excalibur. You following me so far? <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I'm doing, I mean, this, well, I'm doing this from memory, so I don't have issue citations on hand. So this is the future that baby Nathan Christopher pops into. And what Rachel does at this point is immediately clone a backup of him. Because I guess that's what you do.
1: I mean, I work in IT, and I cannot fault that logic.
2: This backup is immediately captured and raised by Apocalypse, and he grows up to be Strife. Meanwhile, Rachel Summers' mother, Ascani, figures someone has to raise this kid. I know... I'll grab versions of my parents from the past, put them in cloned bodies of people from their family timelines so they'll sort of fit and have similar powers in the future, and they can raise Nathan. That is The Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, and it's a 12-year story that takes place during two days of Scott and Jean's honeymoon.
3: I've always wondered why they never seemed more bothered about that when they got back. They just react as though they've woken up from a bad dream.
1: I mean, I figure by that point in their life, it's just sort of par for the course.
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't even know if it's actually... Considering Jean's first honeymoon, but on Scott's first honeymoon was defined by being attacked by a giant octopus and or squid and, you know, further horrible, horrible misadventures. So I assume he pretty much just expects it at this point. So they go into the future. They're freedom fighters. They are slim and red Day Spring. under those names. They raise baby Nathan Christopher up to a 12 year old. And... When he's about 12, Rachel Summers dies and she's not able to keep them in the future anymore. So they shunt back to the past and Cable is basically orphaned. So he grows up in this future and he grows up and becomes a freedom fighter. He becomes the leader of something called Clan Chosen, which is, again, a rebel group that's fighting against strife. So there's this ongoing political battle. That's future Nathan. That stuff all plays out. And at some point, he comes back to the past and takes over the New Mutants. Now, this happens Chronologically for the reader, significantly before Nathan Christopher gets pulled into the future. So Cable is actually involved directly in that storyline. And one of the major, major issues of the storyline, one of the big conflicts is that Strife is claiming to be the original and Cable's the clone. And everyone figures, Oh yeah, obviously Cable's seriously damaged. He's got one eye missing. He's got, you know, the metal arm. He's really abrasive. And why wouldn't you believe a random man covered in blades? This is also the first hint we get. That cable and strife might be Nathan because there's a fortress on the moon. Of course,
1: that's just a given, really.
4: Str- there are multiple fortresses on the moon by now. Like Dracula has one. The Inhumans have one. The Watcher has one.
2: The you moon's has got to be the
4: sort
3: of waving to one another from the balcony.
2: <laughs> yeah, the moon's got to be pretty crowded by this point. I mean, real estate prices like a moon of, of, uh... look. exactly. Oh, I like this. Everyone
1: bring a covered dish.
2: There should have been a Battle World: The Moon series. I believe, if I remember correctly, one of the conceits is that the place where Strife is holding Scott and Jean has some kind of genetics-based lock. And Scott and Jean can get in, and Strife can get in, and Cable can get in, and no one else can. So obviously there's a connection. That's the first time it's seriously teased. I don't think it's actually absolutely confirmed until years later, specifically until Scott and Jean get married. Scott basically skips his bachelor party for um, angst-ridden denouement with Cable in the danger room.
1: Scott can't have fun, so that fits.
2: Well, they reconnect and bond and sort of, we're like, oh yeah, so just so you know, we are actually the people who raised you. And they know at this point that Cable is Nathan, but they haven't yet officially made the connection between Scott and Jean and Slim and Red Dayspring. So Cable's going to continue to sort of bat back and forth between the future and the present for a long time and there are other bits and pieces other continuity loops ship is a big one that's the sentient ship that we first meet when it's enslaved by apocalypse and that eventually becomes X-Factor's home base and will eventually 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 become cables the orbital space station Graymalkin there's his kid who's um one of those really tragic but also really boring Tyler is
1: seriously boring
2: Yeah like Tyler is one of those stories that's obviously supposed to be very dramatic and very touching and just kind of isn't Spoiler, he's eventually killed by Wolverine. No one actually cares very much. Now, Cable and time travel become a really, really key element of X-Men again around the time that Hope Summers is introduced. Hope Summers, or originally just Hope, is the first mutant baby born after M-Day, which is when Wanda Maximoff said no more mutants and basically wiped out almost all of the mutant population of Earth and new mutant manifestations stopped. So Hope is born and she is... Immediately the center of an enormous conflict between multiple groups of mutants, multiple groups of non-mutants, time travelers, robots, basically Marvel Universe grand melee over this baby.
1: Cats and dogs living together, mass hysteria.
2: What ends up happening is the X-Men get their hands on her and they basically repeat Cable's early backstory. Scott finally has this kid who he thinks is going to be somehow the key to bringing back the mutant population. And Cable is like, we got to get her out of here. She's going to die in this. Let me take her into the future. I'll make sure to keep her safe. And it's basically an almost exact repeat of that story with Cable. So Cable takes hope into the future and she spends her early life jumping timelines nonstop with him. This is why her last name is Summers, because she's Cable's adopted kid. While Bishop, who's another future displaced X-Man, chases them through time trying to kill her because he thinks that her presence in the main timeline is what's going to trigger the dystopian future that he comes from.
1: Alternate timeline versus alternate timeline. I love it.
2: Right. Eventually, Cable and hope come back. There's Avengers versus X-Men. Everything is eventually resolved. And Cable is at loose ends. Because Cable's big messiah stuff in the far future, in his personal timeline, is over. He's done his job with regards to hope. He's trying to stay away from her so she can live a normal life. And he has to figure out what he's going to do now. And that's where Cable gets the most interesting to me. Because a messiah character, a savior figure, is a pretty standard thing in superhero comics. While Cable's arc is more of a curly curlicue, it's still in a lot of ways very typical to that, but he keeps going afterwards. And so the question of, you know, what does the Messiah do after the main epic of which he was designed to be part has closed? Where does he find that meaning is where Cable becomes, to me, one of the most interesting characters in the Marvel Universe as a character, not just as a continuity artifact.
1: Although he certainly is both.
2: And continues to be because, as we mentioned, I think some time ago, he has been running around as a series of clones of himself in Cy Spurrier's X-Force because Cy Spurrier is basically the Darren Morgan of Marvel.
1: Yes, he is. I really like that series. Oh, Oh, God, me
2: me too. I love it. But one of the things that I love about it is that it very, very much and very directly just takes a crowbar to expectations and prior continuity.
1: As Cy Spurrier does with
3: everything he touches.
2: So that's Cable for me. Cable is kind of my continuity holy grail.
3: Cable is one of these rare characters who sort of went through a phase of being incredibly complicated and actually sort of came out the other side, where they managed to explain it all away in a way that, for practical purposes, you can boil it down to something that's actually quite simple. He's a guy from the future. You can ignore his relationship with the Summers family for most purposes and still write a perfectly workable story. And I think he's a rare case where at the end of the day, they actually ended up with a viable character once they'd untangled all the continuity knots, more by luck than design, because there wasn't any design.
2: They did, and I think one of the critical factors in that, one of the points where Cable starts to make sense is when he becomes not the protagonist, but a backup character in someone else's story. Basically, That's once point. Hope shows up, Hope becomes the center of Cable's storylines. In that context, and through her filter, he becomes much, much more coherently written, and also much, much more relatable.
1: So there you have it. Four horrible, wonderful tangles of continuity across two different superhero universes.
2: And if you don't understand comics by now, Cosmic Entity or otherwise, I'm not sure how much more we can do for you because this not only wraps up this episode, but it wraps up the nine episode major mid-autumn crossover event, Secret Convergence on Infinite Podcasts.
1: And if you've made it through all nine episodes, we are very, very impressed with you. And I'm sure the Beyonder is as well.
2: We will drop links to all of those in the as mentioned. Meanwhile, you know where to find us. We're at rachelandmiles.com. Paul, Kieran, where can folks track you down?
3: Uh, you can find me at house to where uh, you'll find the House to Astonish podcast and also the blog where I review comics and a bit of wrestling and a bit of preschool television these days because I have a two-year-old boy. So there's a lot of that to be written about.
4: You can find Journey to Misery at Kingpulse.com, which is where you can find all of the episodes. And I am on Twitter at KingImpulse. And you can find Helena, who is my co-host and lovely girlfriend at, at H-E-H-A-C-H-I-W.
1: Awesome, guys, thank you so much. I know we were only thrown together by random chance and a cosmic entity, but this has been kind of awesome, and I now know so much more about Kang and the DC universe, and I think my brain liquefied a little bit, but I consider that progress toward perfection.
2: The real question is whether we'll forget all of this when we go back to our own podcasts.
1: Oh man, I guess we'll never know.
2: The hell? Paul? Kieran? What just happened? Oh shit! Monsters! They're everywhere! Oh, oh, wait. Dude, dude, those are Kyle's kaiju. We're back in the studio.
1: What the hell just happened? Kyle, I have never been so glad to see you in my life. You guys were recording, and then a moment later you just vanished. Where were you? Battle pod. Battle pod. It's a really long story, but I got this sweet new costume.
2: Yeah, I've been meaning to ask. On, like, a scale of 1 to 10, how sure are we that that's not actually an alien symbiote?
1: Like, 7?
2: I thought we were supposed to get ultimate power or something.
1: Uh, no one ever actually gets ultimate power. At least we all survived.
2: Well, except for Matt.
1: It's a crossover death. He'll be back. So, uh, you guys want to finish up the episode? Oh, uh, yeah, I guess we should do that. Uh, Rachel, want to take us out?
2: Sure. This has been the final segment of the Secret Convergence on Infinite Podcasts, a nine-part crossover featuring Fan Bros, into It with Elle Collins, Silence, Less Than Live with Kate Leth, Journey into Misery, Wait What?, House to Astonish, War Rocket Ajax, and Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, and guest starring Greg Rucka as the voice of the Beyonder. Special thanks to Brandon Graham, James Stoko, and Kyle Yount.
1: When not on BattlePod, Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and is produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast KaijuCast.
2: New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes and Stitcher and at rachelandmiles.com.
1: Check out rachelandmiles.com for all sorts of extra content, from episode companion posts and essays to fan art, X-Men evolution recaps and lots and lots of other stuff.
2: This podcast is completely listener-supported and ad-free and that is made possible by our rad Patreon subscribers. If you'd like to join those fine folks, check out the link at the top of rachelandmiles.com.
1: Next week, we'll be diving back into the dark heart of continuity as we
2: kick off our three-part coverage of the fall of the mutants